Hi, welcome back to another episode of Real World Serverless, a podcast where I speak with real world practitioners and get their stories from the trenches. Today, I'm joined by Jillian from Liberty Mutual. Hi, Jillian. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So we've known each other for a little while now. For the audience, uh, can you tell us about yourself and your experience with AWS and serverless? Sure. So I've been working um, with AWS and serverless um, on several projects, both large-scale enterprise and and some more exploratory work for about three years now. Um, I'm also an AWS machine learning hero, but big serverless fan. Um, I helped organize Serverless Day Belfast earlier this year, thankfully, before we all went into lockdown when I could still see people in person. That was a really good conference. I really enjoyed that. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about uh, Liberty Mutual? You guys are quite a big company, but uh, uh, for audience who haven't heard about Liberty Mutual, can you just hi- talk about high level, what you guys do and uh, what is your work there? Sure. Um, so Liberty Mutual is a big Fortune 100 uh, insurance company. Um, it's got more than 50,000 employees worldwide and um, about more than 4,000 of those are in IT. Uh, and the company in which I work Um, Liberty IT is a wholly owned subsidiary of Liberty Mutual uh, with offices in Belfast in Northern Ireland and in Dublin, Ireland, um, where we have about 600 software engineers focused on delivering um, world-class software and solutions for Liberty Mutual. So obviously we're building um, internally for Liberty Mutual, so obviously mostly insurance-based applications, although I have also worked on internal employee applications as well. Um, and we are moving. It's very exciting because even though we're this huge 100-year-old company, um, we are very much moving towards this serverless-first mindset um, and trying to drive all of our architectural decisions um, across all of IT um, in that mindset and with the cloud and serverless technologies as far as we can. Yeah, that is really good to hear. And uh, you guys certainly have a, you know, quite a few AWS uh, heroes uh, uh, in your ranks as well. Um, so for you personally, you have done some really interesting work with chatbots. Can you maybe talk us through some of the work you've done in that area? Sure. So I know that uh, I said to you before that uh, Alexa was sort of my my gateway into both chatbots and into serverless. Um, I think... Way back when Alexa was still pretty new, uh, I got an Alexa device for Christmas and um, I plugged it in and my little brother tried to order an Xbox One through it. So <laughs> so um, I did turn off automatic ordering. Uh, but I was, I was just really intrigued by this um, new technology that could sort of understand humans. It could understand what you said uh, you didn't have to say it in a very specific way. And I just really wanted to know more about it. So it was the Christmas holidays and I hopped on and, and did some tutorials. And um, without really even knowing what I was doing, I wrote my first Lambda um, on AWS. It was the first time I'd used AWS or written a Lambda function. Um, it created my little model so that uh, Alexa could understand me. Um, I was just super excited. And when I got back into the office in January, they were setting up a new team um, to look at chatbots. And so I joined that team. And what we built there was an internal digital assistant. So it was for our employees. It could answer questions around 
um, lots of internal things like the help desk or finance or HR. And it was, um, it was a huge success, very popular. And we've actually managed to spin it off into its old its own company called WorkGrid, um, which is amazing um, that we've been able to take those tools that we built for our own employees and then actually take them out and offer them to other companies as well. Um, and then as spin-off from that, we have lots of other bits and pieces going on in the companies. We've got virtual agents in our call center um, that have been really successful, um, really get great people working on um, lots of that. I know we've had quite a few of them out giving talks out uh, about what they've been doing. So lots of really exciting stuff in the conversational space in Liberty. You mentioned that you also did uh, quite a lot of work with uh, Lex as well. Um, can you maybe give, uh, give us some examples of the application that you built with Lex? Sure. I mean, I think the biggest one I worked on was that employee digital assistant. Uh, we picked up uh, Amazon Lex when it was in preview. Uh, so not long after it was announced at reInvent a few years back. And we um, worked um, through... Some of the fun times, as you as you well know yourself, if you pick things up in preview, you kind of have to roll with whatever happens and deal with some of the early quirks in any system. Um, but because of that, um, we were able to sort of give a lot of feedback back to Amazon um, and they were able to help us a little bit um, in exchange for us finding the bugs. Um, and I think we... We walked into it not being sure. None of us had worked um, in chatbots apart from a little bit of Alexa um, development. And we we went in quite naive and we, we thought it would just be magic. Um, but we learned pretty quickly that, you know, your data is so key, um, as, as in any machine learning project, um, which I guess coming as a software developer rather than, I guess, from the data science side, um, you don't actually appreciate how important it is that you have that really great data. And we were building something for an employee that didn't exist. Um, in some of our call centers, we've used Lex and those virtual agents, but we have all these scripts of people who have phoned in and the conversations they've had with humans. Uh, but whenever we um, built our employee digital assistant, we didn't have you know, anything to go on to start with. We were working um, purely off things like what do people search for on our intranet? Um, what sort of emails do finance get? What sort of uh, questions are you know, being sent to the finance team? And so we had to start to piece together and really test and learn and really be able to gather that data and really um, keep refining and refining those models. And we weren't sure at the start how far we would be able to push Lex. Like how many, how many questions could you really put in and still get pretty good results? Uh, but we, <laughs> we got pretty far um, and it's still being built up and we're getting a little bit more sophisticated with um, hooking bots together. Um, but I really... I really appreciate the fact that in AWS there is all these different layers of AI services that you have that top layer that's kind of your serverless mindset where you can just use the service, you don't own it, you're not paying for it if you're not using it. 
um, and you can get started right away. So we were able to get started right away with some of those services. Lex was our first one. Um, and then, you know, if you are working with one of those services and you find you need something uh, much more custom, you can start working down the layers um, and build, you know, as far down as you you want. If you are a hardcore data scientist and you, you believe, right, I can build a better NLU model and then Amazon can, then you can do that. It's available to you. But if you're a software developer and you, you want to get started really quickly, um, things like Lex, like Polly, um, even Alexa, it, it's really easy to get started. And actually, you can get really great results just using the services. So you talked about sort of refining and uh, I guess uh, polishing the model there. Uh, what does that actually look like uh, in terms of you know, day-to-day wise? Uh, how, what are you actually doing to uh, refining and improving those models? Yep. Um, so when you're building a chatbot, uh, you're working off a series of what are called intents. And each of those intents are linked to an action. So some sort of fulfillment. Uh, so in our case, some of them would be uh, maybe just giving you an answer back. So searching for something and responding with like, here's the document you're looking for. Uh, some of them might actually take actions for you. So if you've locked yourself out of your phone, they might be able to go ahead and unlock it for you. Uh, some of them are a little bit more conversational. Um, but each of those intents are tied to a set of utterances. So those are a set of things that are how a human would phrase asking for that particular thing. But you need to get a large enough set and enough variation in that set to then be able to train the model that can correctly match the intent. Now, I know that... Um, Sometimes people think that it's it's some sort of like regex and you, <laughs> I had one of our business analysts ask me if we had a spreadsheet in the cloud, if that's how it was working, um, which is not exactly how it was working. Um, but so although it's not an exact match, you do need enough variety in there and you do need enough examples of things people really say. And then you also need to make sure that your intents are not overlapping so if people would ask for multiple intents in the same way, um, then it's going to get pretty confusing if you put the same text and multiple <laughs> intents um, in the same way a human wouldn't be able to work that out, then your chatbot's not going to be able to work it out. Uh, so you have to be really careful that you are both covering enough phrases, you've got enough training data for each of those intents, but also that each of your intense training data are different enough from each other that it's not getting confused and now I'm missing things. And so a really key thing is being able to take a look at the things that people have asked that the chatbot didn't understand and start to see, okay, are these things we should have understood? And if so, let's get them in, let's retrain the model. Are these new things that we didn't even think of? People are asking for a functionality we don't have um, in which case, that's that's really great feedback. Uh, one of the really nice things about conversational interface is that it's completely open. You know, if people go to your website and they wish that there was a button that did something, unless they then, you know, work out how to go and ask you for feedback, um, and that you know, you will never know that they looked at the page and went, 
I think there should have been a button here. Whereas when you have a chatbot that people are speaking to or typing into, they're just telling you exactly what they want. Um, they're basically telling you, this is how I thought it would work, or this is what I thought it would do. Now, if it's way off, potentially you're not doing a good job of describing what your bot can do. But it can be really interesting because what it can let us do is if we are finding things that we should have recognized, we can retrain the model. If we're finding things that are new that people want to know, um, we can add them really quickly into the model and give back a response that lets the user know that we understood them, even if we can't give them the answer yet. So if you, let's say you want to ask about your payslip, but we can't actually give you an answer for that yet. What we can say back is, I'm sorry, I can't answer questions about your payslip yet, as opposed to, I'm sorry, I didn't understand, uh, which is a less helpful, a little bit more of a frustrating answer to get for someone. And then in behind the scenes, we can work to get that functionality in place for people. Um, because the chapel architecture, you know, it's a lot more than just Lex. It's a full serverless um, architecture. All of um, those individual discrete bits are um, a whole lot of whole lot of Lambda functions in there. Um, so it's really easy to sort of like put in new bits to the conversation, to change things, to hook things up differently um, in behind that model. Um, so we try to be really flexible. We try to be really responsive um, and to keep responding to how the users are interacting with the bot. Um, even whenever you think you've got it really down, you know, someone new will come along and say something in a way you didn't expect. Um, especially we are a worldwide company. How people speak in Belfast is not how they speak in Boston. Um, so it is really important to sort of be aware of the variations, um, especially as you start to roll out um, to different places. For this uh, virtual assistance uh, or conversation assistance, in the sort of specific business context, I guess it might be okay, but Liberty Mutual is a multinational company. Uh, you've got people working in different countries, uh, different uh, areas have got their own sort of local names for things, potentially. Uh, you know, like, for example, in the UK, uh, we call football, uh, which in the US would be called soccer. Do you have to deal with anything like that in terms of local slangs or local dialects for names for things and be able to understand that and translate that to a common model? Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, what we mostly try to do is to include all of that variation in the one model. Um, at the moment, uh, we just have English as the main language. As we start to try and you know, do different languages, it will be a very different thing. Um, but yes, variations in how people ask for things. Mostly we can we can get that into the one intent because usually the variations aren't so broad that they're kind of um, moving into a completely different set. Um, but yes, uh, if we need to account for soccer or football, um, and that is definitely something that is easy to miss. Uh, if you are sitting at Belfast, you don't always um, consider... Uh, the the wide variation of different slang um, in in well you know what from from Belfast to Dublin there's different slang let alone from Belfast to you know Boston or Seattle or any of the other offices we have people in so it's definitely something 
that we're looking for when we're reviewing things that didn't um, get answered by the bot. Um, you see pretty quickly the different ways people speak. And um, it is it is always interesting because natural language is very tricky. Um, one of the things, uh, so I'm not uh, working directly with our digital assistant at the moment. Uh, I'm working on some other natural language problems. Uh, and one of the things we're looking at is reading emails, which is a very interesting problem because you can kind of think of an email as kind of a special case conversational sort of um, model. So in a chatbot, you've got that single turn where people ask for one thing and then they get a response. Whereas an email, you know, it's still a conversation. People will start off and they'll say, hi there. It's great to see you last week. And then they'll ask things and then they'll say, you know, thank you very much. And they'll sign off their name. So you still have a conversational structure but you have multiple um, turns basically without the other person getting a turn. So being able to understand what is being asked in an email is much more complicated than being able to understand what's asked in, in a single turn in a chatbot. Um, and what we're finding is there isn't one way of understanding any email in the world. You have to be very aware of the different types of things that are coming in, the different types of groups they're coming from. Um, different um, groups use very specialist language, um, especially in the insurance industry. So understanding their particular phrases they use to mean certain things um, is really important. So understanding your domain is, is really critical. So what you mentioned there about the email being a more of a sort of conversation with different terms, or different parts to the conversation. And you talked about the chatbot being just singleton, you ask something, you get something back. Um, but can you maybe apply similar techniques to chatbots so that uh, maybe I can say, ask uh, um, ask the chatbot, uh, who is uh, Gillian Armstrong? And then follow up with another question. What is her position in the Liberty Mutual? What project is she working on right now? So that reference to her or she being to Gillian, I mean, how do you infer and implement that uh, that context into the conversation so the chatbot understands those references? Yeah, <laughs> with great difficulty. Um, so I think that's still that's still a big challenge, and it's it's interesting um, even in in the Alexa space. Um, they're making um, a lot of great strides in that area, but um, being able to understand context and refer back is still a really hard problem in in natural language, um, and it's still something that's still being solved. I know last year at Remars they announced Alexa Conversations, and it was very much being able to understand the context and carry through. Um, what you were talking about before and remember things. Um, and as far as I know, that's still in preview and that's a year later. So I know Amazon is still trying to figure out how to scale it and how to make it work um, with, uh, I guess, other people's skills as well as their own. Um, in our space, part of it is um, there is an element of machine learning, but on top of that, we're doing a lot of rules, rule-based 
so we can infer a lot of context. So for instance, if you call our call center and you've called a particular line, um, we can make a pretty good guess about why you're calling. Uh, if you've called in and we can see you have an active claim in progress, we can guess you're probably going to ask a question about it. Um, in the employee digital assistant, uh, we know what you've just asked. So if we're holding that context, we can try to infer that it's probable that whatever you're asking next, if we haven't got a direct piece of information that we can probably fill up with one of the things that we already know. But it's a, it is a hard problem because we're still, there's still a combination of some clever machine learning, but also some clever you know, rules put on top of that. Um, we're certainly with our emails as well. It's a very similar thing. We're using some of the Amazon AI services for that as well. So um, we're exploring you know, using things like Comprehend and Lex and things like that. Um, but there is some rule based on top of that in trying to break down the email into its like conversational pieces. So you can sort of get to the most relevant piece and like what is the important, what is the important part of what's being said here? Uh, which is, you know, it is the same in the chatbot in that much smaller space. What is the most important bit of what you're saying? And how do I tie that back to whatever has just come before? Gotcha. So I guess the way you're saying is that uh, we can't have uh, Jarvis in everyone's home just you know, quite just yet. <laughs> um, so in this case, uh, you touched on Alexa and Lex. Uh, in terms of building a chatbot, if I'm going to start building a chatbot today, uh, where would you say, I mean, how, would, how would you say I should decide when to use Alexa versus uh, Lex and building some of that uh, uh, chatbot functionalities myself? Sure. Uh, it really depends what you want to do with it and what your use case is. So obviously Alexa is tied to Alexa. So the only way your users are going to be able to interact with you is through an Alexa device or the Alexa app. Now that can be really powerful because you're getting the whole Alexa ecosystem. Um, it's if, if your users are using Alexa, it's already where they are. It's really handy for them, um, but you are still stuck in that ecosystem. Um, with Lex, Lex is just a natural language understanding service. So you can use it anywhere, um, but obviously it's not tied into Alexa. You only get what you build on top of it. So your chatbot will only do what you create, but you can put it anywhere. You can put it on your website. You can put it in your mobile app. Um, it can be chat only, it can have voice. So if you need something that's completely custom to you and you need to be able to surface it up wherever you want to, um, then Lex is the right way to go. If you want something that is available on the Alexa platform, then that's the direction you want to go. There is a lot of uh, overlap in the technologies in terms of how you build, and it is somewhat portable between the two. I want to take a moment to give a shout out to this week's sponsor, Chaos Search. Chaos Search is the fully managed log analytics platform that uses your Amazon S3 storage as the data store. 
Companies like Armor, HubSpot, AlertLogic, and many more are already using Chaos Search as a critical part of their infrastructure and processing terabytes of log data every day. Because Chaos Search uses your Amazon S3 storage, there is no moving data around, no data retention limits, and you can save up to 80% versus other methods of log analysis. So if you're sick and tired of your Elk stack falling over or having your data retention squeezed by increasing costs, then visit chaosearch.io today and join the log analysis revolution. Um, I spoke with uh, Alexander Simovich, I guess quite a while back now. I think it was episode number 18. We talked about Alexa as well. Um, where do you see, so I guess chat as a user face, uh, where do you see that's going in the future? Do you think that's potentially the dominant user interface uh, we're going to see in the future like they see in the Star Trek? Uh, and where do you think, I guess, uh, what are the main challenges for, uh, for us to get there? Sure. Well, I think, I mean, we're in a pandemic world now where you don't really want to touch things. So I think voice is about to become a lot more important of a modality uh, than it has even previously um, because um, if you if you now don't want people to be touching the same things, um, being able to just speak to something instead is going to be really powerful. So I think uh, that may push the technology on a little bit more. I think that voice is a really natural way of interacting with technology. It is the primary way that we interact with each other. I think we're still a little uncomfortable with it and the technology is not perfect yet. So it can be a little bit frustrating for people. I think I expected it to take off a little quicker than it has, but I absolutely believe that it is still going to be a really significant um, technology and a way of interacting with technology in the future. If you think about things like AR and VR, uh, voice is just a really natural way of interacting with technology in that space where you don't really have real physical touch. Um, and I know in my house, uh, all my lights and heat and everything. Um, I just speak and it, it happens. I think voice is here. It's, um, it's on everybody's phone. There's Alexa and Google devices sitting in a huge amount of houses around the world. Uh, it is coming. It's not there yet, but there definitely is so many applications and it is such a powerful technology. Um, we should expect to see it just keep growing and keep being used in more and more places. Funny you mentioned that the whole pandemic situation has potentially pushed this urgency for voice technology forward. The other day I saw a pilot for something that the companies are doing where uh, they're implementing eye tracking for, I think, a device, a screen. Uh, instead of mouse, they, they track your eye movement and then you can click uh, by blinking and something like that. And my first thought was, uh, that's just crazy. Why not just use voice? <laughs> <laughs> That doesn't sound super convenient, I have to admit. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's really crazy. Uh, fun, uh, but crazy. Um, not in a good way. Uh, so... <laughs> 
so in this case, uh, uh, what would be some of your, I guess, top uh, AWS wishlist items uh, when it comes to making Alexa or, or voice uh, chatbots more accessible or easier to develop? Sure. Um, I would really love to see um, some natural language generation um, capabilities, um, especially with um, with one of the technologies that's there, Kendra. Um, came out not too long ago and it lets you do natural language searches on your corpus of documents or information you have but it can't do natural language generation so it will find the the text it thinks is most relevant and bring it back up but what it can't do is then frame that back as a sentence in response to your sentence it can just serve back up what the text is i would really I would really love to see a little bit of natural language generation where you don't have to hard code um, basically all the responses for your chatbots. The chatbots can start to be a little bit smarter about um, assembling their responses to you and sort of um, inferring what it should be. I think that would be pretty exciting to see. Um, It is interesting um, that they announced Deep Composer. I think People are still struggling a little bit with uh, with what to do with uh, Amazon Deep Composer, but I think the that generative AI is a really fascinating space, um, especially in natural language. I think there's some very interesting things to watch in that space. Um, I would love to see more serverless AI. Um, we definitely have some of the services that are definitely serverless. There's lots that are not. Um, there's been a little bit more of a push in SageMaker um, for it to be a little bit more serverless. I would love to see um, more in that space as well, because I think there's a lot of potential there. I think those are my big, my big things. Um, what do you mean by serverless AI? Uh, I've used uh, SageMaker a little bit, uh, kind of understand how it works from high level, um, but um, I'm, I'm not quite sure what you mean there when you went when you said the service AI um, so some of the new things that are still I guess being ruled out are things like and they don't call them serverless notebooks I don't believe but essentially they're serverless Jupyter notebooks so you can create the notebook um, and you um, so Jupyter notebooks obviously are um, not your primary way of <laughs> of developing applications, but very useful for for data scientists and exploratory work in in machine learning. Um, At the moment, um, in the previous way, you create your compute, you spin it up, and then you can open some Jupyter notebooks on it. Um, If you want to port those somewhere else, you have to copy them down, spin up new compute, put put Jupyter notebooks on that one. Um, Whereas now what they're sort of doing with their new sort of SageMaker um, Jupyter Notebooks is that you create that notebook, you can share it with other people, and then you put the compute underneath it. And you can change out the compute. Um, so you can spin it down, the notebook stays there, and then if you if you go, okay, well, I need a much bigger box to run my training job here, um, you don't have to now move the Jupyter notebook to different compute, you put different compute underneath, still with that same notebook. And I really 
I really like that sort of thought that it's much faster to be able to use those notebooks and you don't have to, you know, you're not leaving a server running. If you get used to really used to serverless, you're used to, if you're not using it, it doesn't cost you anything. Whereas uh, if you forget to turn off some EC2s they, that you aren't really using, they definitely are costing you something. Um, just to run a Jupyter Notebook's not, not a very um, cost-effective way. So I think seeing things like that where you can do your training, you can do your exploration work, but you're sort of just paying for what you use without you having to sort of do all the heavy lifting of remembering to like shut everything down and spin it all back up again manually um, would be really great to see. And I'm always a big fan of the uh, AI services as well, um, especially the ones that are pay-as-you-go and are hosting the models for you. Um, so you're not paying um, for for hosting as well. Gotcha. That makes a lot more sense. That's the last of my questions. Uh, is there anything else that you'd like to tell the listeners uh, while we're here? Any maybe personal projects that you want to share or maybe is uh, Liberty Mutual hiring right now? Oh, Liberty Mutual is, of course, always hiring. Um, and, we, and if you are in um, the UK or Ireland, um, Belfast and Dublin we always have positions going in our offices there as well and I suppose in terms of me I mean come and come and connect with me on Twitter I'm at virtual Jill so that's virtual G-I-L-L um, and you can come I always always like to hear from people who are interested in serverless and AI come and tell me what you're doing um, or you can keep track of what I'm doing um, I am most active on Twitter um, that's that's definitely the best place to connect with me. Awesome. I'll put those information on the show notes so that anyone can uh, get in touch with you through there. And again, Julian, thank you so much uh, for, uh, for taking the time to talk to us today. Sure, no problem. It was great to be on and great to chat to you again. Yeah, take care and uh, stay safe. You too. Okay, bye-bye. So that's it for another episode of Real World Serverless. To access the show notes, please go to realworldserverless.com. If you want to learn how to build production-ready serverless applications, please check out my upcoming courses at productionreadyserverless.com. And I'll see you guys next time.